0: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I know it's been a minute since your boy Big L has recorded, man, but I am back, I'm excited, Uh, thank you for everybody who has been inboxing me, asking me where I've been, what's been going on. nothing in particular, man, just life, life has grabbed me, and uh, been holding me tight, man, just, I haven't been doing much, but just literally trying to duck, bob and weave the jabs and haymakers of life, man, If this is the first time doing this, my name is Elgin Barry. I'm the host. Studies, you We know, you pick a book every season and we just read. We read, we go line by line in between uh, particular pieces and portions of the text. I'll give commentary, I'll give thoughts, and ask questions and things along those lines. I try to pick a book, man, that is relevant to our time from, we can grow from this particular season, season two, uh, we have chosen Evicted by Doc Matthew Desmond, the uh, book has won a ton of awards, uh, a brief summary of the book has been evicted, a sociologist and MacArthur genius, Matthew Desmond. Follows eight families in Milwaukee as they struggle to keep their roof over their heads, held as wrenching and revelatory by the Nation, vivid and unsettling by the New York Review of Books. Evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation, while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems. I did a, <clears throat> I went through and read ahead as I always do, just to take some notes man, on the upcoming chapter that we're going to talk about, and chapter 5 is titled, 13th Street. And I'm telling you, man. me of my own family, we're going to learn and meet Arlene. Arlene is a mother. Uh, She was a wife. She's a friend. She's trying to make it. Chapter 13, and the text reads, Arlene didn't mind 13th Street. There was a bodega owned by the Arabs on one end of her block, and a bar for old men on the other. She could walk Jafaris to school. Arlene could have done without the heights, also known as crackheads, who recently moved into the abandoned house next door. But a few more houses down, a girl was learning to play the violin. Her new apartment was coming along too. There was a time when the house was a stately thing, built in Greek revival style. It was two stories of sandstone block with twin columns supporting an awning from over the front porch. A pair of picture frame windows adorned with peak pediments faced the street, as did a larger second story window whose pane opened on hinges. But over the years the house had deteriorated, what column base was unsettling, causing the overhead awning to slope sideways. The column's porch and window pediments had painted ash gray. An imposing iron-barred outer door had been installed. Arlene didn't like walking up the steps with their flaking paint. A mismatched stair rails on either side so she always used a side entrance. Arlene had thrown herself into making the apartment a home. The previous tenements, tenants sorry, had left behind a large armorer, a bedroom dresser, a bed, and a refrigerator. And there even And there was even more in the basement. Dishes, clothes, and an upholstered chair. Arlene put it all to use, rearranging the furniture and stacking the dishes next to her nice porcelain plates. The furniture was once used and given to her years ago by a domestic violence shelter. She claimed the front bedroom and gave the boys the one in the back, placing their twin mattresses on the ground and organizing clothes in dressing drawers. She unpacked a stereo and listened to old-school hip-hop tracks on burned CDs. Her favorite being Tupac's Keep Your Head Up. In the kitchen, she hung a humble drawing of a black farmer's hauling a row. Over the bathroom door, she affixed a sign that she had found in a drugstore. Today worried you. Yesterday, and all as well. In the basement, Arlene also came across some rollers, brushes, and a five-gallon bucket of white paint. She lugged everything upstairs, tied a wrap around her head, and gave the walls a fresh coat. She went ahead and painted the stairwell leading to the upstairs unit, too. The job complete. She lit a stick of incense to mask the paint smell and looked around. She felt pleased with her self-content. The days passed and Arlene and her boys settled into her new home. After school, Jory sometimes challenged other neighborhood boys to a game of cans. Jafar looked on. Using a basketball, Jory and his competitor tried to hit soda cans flattened on the sidewalk, earning more points for the father's shot. He was a lanky boy whose arms and fingers seemed to be growing faster than the rest of them, a condition he tried to conceal under oversized sweatshirts and coats. He wore his natural hair and had a relaxed, agreeable way about him. But Drury was fiercely loyal to his mother. If Arlene needed to smile, Drury would steal for her. If she was disrespected, he would fight for her. Some kids born into poverty set their sights on doing whatever it takes to get out. Drury wasn't going anywhere, sensing he was put on this earth to look after Arlene and Jafaris. He was all of 14 years old, the man of the house. Jafaris was a big kid, the biggest in his kindergarten class. While Drury was all knees and elbows, Jafaris had a round chest, defined shoulders with high cheekbones and cornrows that always needed redoing. When Jafaris grew bored, he would scavenge the basement or back alley for anything he could find, mop handles, rusted tools, dog leashes, pieces of plywood, and pretend that they were tanks, helicopters locked in battle. After dinner, Arlene would watch reruns with her volume turned low or read through Jafar's individual education program, IEP evaluations, or flip through her prayer book. Some nights she climbed the stairs and opened the upper unit's unlocked door to give herself a little privacy. Arlene liked that the upstairs unit was vacant. She preferred the things quiet. One day a friend gave Arlene a cat, a half-black, half-white thing. After Sharina said they could keep it, Jury named him Little and began feeding him table scraps. Jury laughed when Little would spring at a loose shoelace or gulp down a ramen noodle. Jafaris would pick up pick him up and press his nose against his ear. <clears throat> Excuse me. Both boys especially loved it when Little caught a mouse. He would drag the thing to the middle of the room and smack it around. The mouse would take different routes, trying to figure out what little wanted. Bat bat, the mouse would tumble and roll with every swat. At some point the pathetic creature would burrow under Little's arm, hiding. Little would let the mouse rest and warm itself. Then he might reach down and grab the creature with his mouth and throw it into the air, enjoying the effort and doing it again and again. Eventually the mouse would just lie there, motionless. Little would look at it with cold disgust, wondering why the creature didn't look up. Drury opened the door and called out, He having an asthma attack. Joy had walked Jafar's home from school. Arlene stayed on the love seat, waiting to see how bad it was. <clears throat> when it was a small attack, Jafar's mouth opened and closed like a caught fish. When it was a medium attack, he made an O with his mouth. When it was bad, his lips curled back, and he breathed through his nubby teeth. Jafar's walked through the door, making the O face. He shrugged off of his backpack and leaned on the love seat like an old man after climbing a flight of steps. Jafaris, go get my bag, Arlene said. The boy nodded and went to the bedroom. When he came back, Arlene pulled out an albuterol and shook it. Jafaris put his mouth to an inhaler and breathed in, but their timing was off. Blow it out! Don't be playing with me, Arlene snapped. Jafaris missed the next try, too, but the third filled his lungs. He held his breath, puffing out his cheeks the way children do before jumping into a pool. His mother counted one, two, three. At ten, Jafaris exhaled and took her breath in and smiled. Arlene smiled back. She gave Jafaris albuterol every morning and every evening. Before bed, he got prednisone, a steroid, through a pronub ultra nebulizer with a plastic tubing and airplane cabin mask. Arlene called it the breathing, ma- uh, breathing machine. Jafar's asthma had been improving. Arlene remembered when she used to rush Jafar to the hospital every week. Jafar's father had given him his name, and lately Arlene had been worried he might given him other things too. His father had learning disabilities and anger issues and Jafaris was beginning to exhibit similar characteristics at school. He excelled at reading, but struggled with other subjects, and he pushed his classmates around. He had been evaluated, but didn't qualify for additional help. Some teachers had suggested medication, which made Arlene bristle. I don't like medicine. I'm totally against Ritalin. I think he needs more one-on-one attention. I don't want to medicate him until he's seen in counselor and done going through that. Excuse me. If we listen to man, we hear Arlene and we see see what she's going through. We're about to get to the part of the story where we get a, a, a clearer understanding of how Arlene got into the situation. So far, Arlene seems like a, a a typical mom who's just trying to trying to make it through. Who's just trying to do the best she can. But we're gonna see here, man. That things are not quite, not quite what they think, man. Here we go. Damn it, it gets rough man. Arlene had met Jafar's father at the movie theater at the Mayfair Mall when she was working the concession stand. It just kind of happened, Arlene recalled, We weren't in no real relationship. They tried for one, but Arlene discovered he could be a violent man. He went to prison soon after she left him. He gave Jafar little else beyond life. It had been the same way with Arlene's father. He had left after impregnating her mother, who was only 16 when she had Arlene. Arlene's grandmother served food in a cafeteria at Columbia St. Mary's Hospital, but her mother rarely worked outside the home. She received assistance and later married a man who held down a job. That man became a minister, which was the reason Arlene tried never to set foot in the church. There's a whole lot behind that statement right there, man. A whole lot. There's a lot to read, which was the reason Arlene tried never to set foot in the church. Now, the author doesn't speak a lot about the relationship between Arlene and her stepfather. But there's something there, and you can see it. Back to the text, and the text reads, When Arlene moved out of 17, she threw away... The hand-me-down clothes her mother had made her wear to school. Ding-dong, her classmates would taunt her when she walked past and recycled bell-bottoms. Arlene put rubber bands on the bottom of her jeans, but that only made the kids laugh harder. When she dropped out before finishing high school, her mother said nothing. She didn't care. Arlene moved in with a family that paid her to babysit their children. During that time, she met the man who became become the father of her oldest, her eldest child, Gerald, whom she took to calling Gerger. After Arlene discovered she was pregnant with Gerger, her man got entangled with the law. I didn't know nothing about having no boyfriend and not a jail all the time. So when I met somebody else during one of the times Gerger's father was locked up, I just left him alone. That someone else was Larry. He was a lean man with calm eyes and a wide brow. Larry had taught himself how to be a mechanic and earn money fixing cars in the back alley. On paydays he would take Arlene out for Chinese food, her favorite. She would read the long menu but ordered the same thing every time, sesame chicken. They were pouring in love, and soon Arlene was pregnant with another son. They named him after Larry but called him Boosie. Larry and Arlene had three more children after that. A daughter and two more sons letting Arlene's mother name their youngest Jury, they liked it. <clears throat> Will you marry me? Larry asked one day. Arlene laughed. She thought he was joking and said no. He wasn't talking about no big marriage. Wasn't even talking about a courthouse. Arlene remembered. But he was not joking. When she realized this, Arlene dropped her smile and said she would have to think about it. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. What gave her pause was not Larry, but his mother and sister. They always thought they knew more. I was never good enough in their eyes. After that, Larry started running around. He crushed Arlene, but when he came back, she always held the door open until one day he didn't come back. They had been together for seven years. This time, the other woman was someone Arlene considered a friend. That happened years ago. Sometimes Larry parked outside of where Arlene was staying. She'd climb in his van, and they'd drive around and talk, mostly about jewelry. From time to time, Larry took jewelry to church or let him spend the night or swelled his lip for getting in trouble at school. When Drury spotted Larry driving by in the neighborhood, he hollered, there goes my daddy, and run after him. When Larry walked out on her and the kids Arlene was working at the mainstay suites by the airport, in despair she quit and began relying on welfare. Sometimes later she found work cleaning the Third Street Pier restaurant, but then her mother died suddenly. The grief overwhelmed her, and she left that job too. She later regretted going back on welfare, but it was a dark time. When she moved on to 13th Street, Arlene was receiving W2T, owing mainly to her chronic depression. She received the same stipend in 2008 that she would have when welfare was reformed over a decade earlier, $20.65 a day. $7,536 Seven thousand five hundred and thirty six dollars a year now listen let's stop for a second family and let's let's unpack that. Arlene was receiving assistance a stipend mainly due to her chronic depression. The stipend that she was receiving in two thousand eight was the same as it was 10 years before. So in 1998, it was also $20.65, $7,536 a year. $7,536 a year was the statement she was receiving for her chronic depression. Now we just read how and some of the reasons why she had chronic depression from the, the heartbreak. Oh, well, let's even go back further than that. Let's even look at the relationship that she had with her mother and her stepfather, the minister. The relationship was bad enough where she decided she never wanted to step foot in the church again. You can hear some of the negative things that her mother said to her. The lack of care or the lack of feeling that, she, that Arlene felt her mother had for her. The number that the, the relationship that she had early on with her child's father, Georger, then Larry wanting to marry her. She brushing Larry off to the side. Larry gets frustrated, gets fed up, and moves on to somebody else and does a sloppy, ignorant move by choosing to be with one of Arlene's friends. So we can see how then Arlene's mother dies. We see the grief. We see where the chronic depression could possibly come in. Now, somebody who actually has a a stable job with a living wage, that's $7,536, would be a, a, a nice addition to that. Be a next edition. But what is $7,536 going to do when you got five children? What does it do? What does it do? Nothing. Back to the text. Since 1997, welfare stipends in Milwaukee and almost everywhere else have not budged, even as housing costs have soared. For years, politicians have known that families cannot survive on welfare alone. This was the case here before when utility costs climbed throughout the 2000s, it was even more true afterwards. Arlene had given up hoping for public assistance long ago. If she had a housing voucher or a key to a public housing unit, she would spend only 30% of her income on rent. It would mean the difference between stable poverty and grinding poverty, the difference between planting roots in the community and being battered from one place to another. It would mean she could give most of her check to her children instead of her landlord. The difference between stable poverty family and grinding poverty. Ain't no difference between that. I understand the distinction that the author is trying to make and even Arlene trying to make. But man, that's poverty, period. Back to the text. Years ago, when she was 19, Arlene rented a subsidized apartment for $137 a month. She had just had surgery and was grateful to be out of her mother's house. She could make her own decisions. So when her friend asked Arlene to give up her place and move in with her, Arlene decided to say yes. 19-year-old decisions. Damn. She walked away from a subsidized apartment and into the private rental market where she could stay for the next 20 years. I thought it was okay to move somewhere else. She remembered, and I regret it right now to this day, young. She shook her head at her 19-year-old self. If I would have been in my right mind, I could have still be there. One day on a whim, Marlene stopped by the housing authority and asked about a list. The woman behind the glass told her the list is frozen. On it were over 3,500 families who had applied for rent assistance four years earlier. Arlene nodded and left with her hands in her pockets. It could have been worse. In larger cities like Washington, D.C., the wait for public housing was counted in decades. In those cities, a mother of a young child who put her name on the list might be a grandmother by the time the application was renewed. Most poor people in America were like Arlene. They did not live in public housing or apartments subsidized by vouchers. Three in four families who qualify for assistance receive nothing. Three in four families. Dang. If Arlene wanted public housing, she would have to save a month's worth of income to repay the housing authority for leaving her subsidized apartment without giving notice, then wait two to three years until the list froze, then wait another two to five years until her application made it to the top of the pile, then pray to Jesus that the person with the stale coffee and the heavy stamp reviewing her file would somehow overlook the eviction record she collected while trying to make ends meet in the private housing market on a welfare check. So she got to pay back the money that she owes the housing authority. Then wait another 10 years to possibly, possibly. The upstairs unit on the 13th street didn't sit vacant for long. Sharina moved a young woman into the apartment soon after the paint had dried on Arlene's wall. Trisha was her name. Arlene and Trisha began talking and sharing meals. Arlene could be quiet and cautious around new people guarded, but Trisha was an open book. She told Arlene that this was her first real home in eight years. Her last real home belonged to her sister, who had asked her to leave after Trisha told her what their father had done to her. Trisha then started sleeping in shelters and abandoned houses, but mostly she went home with men. Damn. At 16, she learned to use her skinny frame, her flush of wavy black hair, her copper skin, a mix of black, Mexican, and white blood. The year before, when she was 23, <clears throat> Trisha had had a baby but signed him over to her sister because she was using crack mostly. After the baby came, Trisha found Repairs of the Breach, a local homeless outreach that helped her get on SSI. Damn, Trisha. Trisha was illiterate and fragile. Jury once reduced her to tears by asking her, are you special or something? But she was also laid back and sweet. Most of all, she was there. When Arlene and Trisha wanted to smoke to stave off boredom or at the end of the month, hunger, Trisha used spare chains to buy loose cigarettes at the corner store or fish stubs from standing ashtrays outside of fast food joints. When Arlene needed to run an errand, Trisha would watch the boys, and Jury, who saw Trisha as an equal or lesser, but certainly not as adult, would tell her to watch her mouth around your forest. I was born to be cussing, Trisha would reply. One day, Arlene and Trisha watched a U-Haul truck pull up. Three women and a man walked up to the apartment and gave Arlene's door a knock. Sensing who they were, Arlene cracked the door and wedged her foot in her leg and foot behind it in case they tried to push through. A young woman introduced herself as the previous tenant and said she came to collect her things. The armoire, the dresser and refrigerator all belonged to her. Arlene told the young woman that Sharina had thrown everything out. The woman looked doubtful, but Trisha backed her up. The previous tenant and her people left before discovering the lie. Once they were gone, Arlene and Trisha nodded at each other. After that, Trisha took to telling people that the woman were old friends that they had met outside a corner store years ago when Trisha was just a girl and Arlene had told her, you are pretty female. There was more to the story about Arlene meeting Trisha's mother in prison about Trisha waking up in the hospital and Arlene being there, but it was all in Trisha's head. It was hard to know if she believed it or not. Trisha came to Sharina through Belinda Hall, who was the best thing that happened to Sharina in a long time. A black woman, not yet 30, with a round face and glasses. Belinda ran her own business, working as a representative payee responsible for handling the finances of SSI beneficiaries found incapable of managing her own money. So what she did was she created a business where people who received SSI and were quote unquote unable to or incapable of managing on their own. Her business was to handle the money for these people. Now watch how this, this hustle works. <clears throat> Sharina liked finding tenants through social services agencies which often vouch for tenants and put up some cash. Now remember, Sharina's a landlord. <clears throat> we read about excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, my throat. We read about Sharina earlier in uh, chapter two and three. She's the, the, the black female landlord. Uh, she met Belinda, this representative, quote unquote. Now listen to how the game works. But Belinda was a special catch. I've been helping this girl as much as possible because I want her to fill up my properties, Sharina reflected. The rent comes directly from her every month. So that's a damn good situation to be in. Sharina told Belinda that she would empty out all her units if she wanted them for her clients. I'm serious, Belinda. I know I would get my money. Trisha was the fourth tenant Belinda had given Sharina since the two women had met three months earlier. Those poor and disabled enough to receive SSI but not clean enough to be welcomed into public housing made up Belinda's client base. Belinda estimated that rent payments took between 60 to 70% of her typical client's monthly income. Many clients had little left over after Belinda paid for rent, utilities, and food. (laughs) Because stable and affordable housing was a major problem for Belinda's clients, she cultivated a friendship with landlords, whom she could then call upon in emergency. Belinda once full Serena around 5 a.m. because the heat in one of her client's buildings had gone out, and she needed to relocate her that day. The faster Belinda could address clients' housing issues, the more clients she could take on and the more money she could make. Belinda charged each client $37 a month for her services. $37 a month per client family. When she met Sharina, Belinda had 230 clients. Okay. 230 doggone clients. Now we're going to do some math. We, we Do we want to do some math to see what Belinda is making a month Do we want to to see? We want to figure out. We want to get an idea. Excuse me, man, my throat. I don't know what the problem is, but excuse me. Let's see the the hustle that she's in. Now, listen, remember what Belinda does. Belinda gets money. She finds people who are on SSI, people who are incapable of maintaining their finances. Now she gets these people to to buy into what she does. I have no idea. But she gets these people to give her their check. And she pays their rent utility and makes sure they have food. And she only charges them $37 a month. Okay. She has 230 clients. You wonder how much she makes a month? You wonder how much she makes a month? Belinda makes $8,000 a month. Because remember, SSI, this is guaranteed money, family. This is guaranteed money. Guaranteed money. So there's no concern about not getting paid, maybe getting paid, yada, yada, yada. Oh, no, 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 no. No. She's killing these people, man. What Belinda could offer Sherina and other landlords was a steady, reliable rental income. And what Belinda got in return was her growing customer base, which meant more money in her pocket. Press 1 to leave a message. Sherina. press 1. Arlene, this is Sherina calling. I'm calling to find out if you had your rent. Remember, we agreed that you were going to pay a little bit over to get caught up with the $320 you owed for. Sharina stopped herself. From finishing a sentence with your sister's funeral calls. She went on. Um, I will be expecting the 650. Go ahead and give me a call. Arlene didn't regret what she had done. Usually when there was a funeral, she couldn't even afford to buy Jafar's new shoes and would just scrub his best ones. She had missed funerals in the past because Juri and Jafar's didn't have anything to wear. But this was her sister. Not her biological, but in the spiritual sense. They were close. She had long been a sickly girl, overweight and diabetic. Her heart quit after she had been hospitalized for pneumonia and a series of other health complications. Arlene didn't have the money, but neither did anyone else. She would have been ashamed of herself if she hadn't pitched in. And this is a woman who is broke, man. She ain't got a dime. She has nothing. Literally nothing. But she is thinking along the lines that she's going to feel some type of way if she doesn't take her last to chip in to pay for the funeral. Not of her sister, but in the spiritual sense. So she gives half of her check to Sharina and the other half to the mortuary. Now, this lady ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. Every dog one dime that she possibly has needs to be going to her rent, her utilities, or food. But the little money that she does have, she takes that and gives it up. <coughs> now, Sharina, the landlord, Knows about this. Sharina's fully aware of this situation. Now, do you think Sharina granted Arlene some compassion? Had a little understanding for the situation? Nah, peep this. Sharina felt bad when she heard about Arlene's sister. She made her new tenant a deal. Arlene could stay if she paid 650 for three months to recover the lost rent. Even if Arlene signed over her entire welfare check each month, she still would be short. But Sharina was betting that Arlene could put in a few calls to family members or nonprofit agencies. Arlene took the deal because she had no other options, and she did have other options. Family, she could have never gave that damn money up. She could have made better choice right there and not giving that damn money up. Sharina and Quentin were in the Suburban when Arlene called around the beginning of the next month. Sharina hung up and looked at Quentin. Arlene said her check didn't come. This was half-truth. Arlene had received the check, but not for $628. She had missed an appointment with her welfare caseworker, completely forgetting about it. A reminder notice was mailed to Atkinson, or was it in 19th Street? When Arlene didn't show, the caseworker sanctioned Arlene by decreasing her benefit. Arlene could have given Sharina her reduced check, but she thought it was better to be behind and have a few hundred dollars in her pocket than be behind and completely broke. Quentin kept his eyes on the road. Story of the life, he said. Yo! Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of chapter 5, man. How could you not be frustrated and have, I mean, it's like you have sympathy, but at the same time, you're so frustrated with the decision making that these people make, man. Damn it. Damn it, man. Damn it. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned in to another episode, man, of the Page Turners Podcast with your host, Big L, Elgin Bailey, Mr. Catch-22, man. I thank you for tuning in. I'm looking forward to digging into chapter six, man, very soon. bye uh, my heart breaks for these folks, man. Because, yes, the system is set up and designed for, to create or to perpetuate failure. But in the midst of that, you see how people make incredibly bad decisions in the midst of their poverty. Which also, nothing does nothing more but to compound their poverty. Damn, it's heartbreaking. Till next time, family. I'm out. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen. I know. It's been a minute since your boy Big L has recorded, man. But I am back. Thank you for everybody who has been inboxing me, asking me where I've been, what's been going on, um, nothing in particular man, just life, life has grabbed me and uh, been holding me tight man, Just I haven't been doing much but just literally trying to duck, bob and weave Jabs and the haymakers of life. If this is your first time joining us, my name is Elgin Barry. I'm the host of this podcast, the Painstreamers Podcast, where we do book studies. We take a book every season and we just read. give commentary, I'll give thoughts and ask questions and things along those lines. I try to pick a book, man, that is relevant to our time, uh, that we can learn from, we can grow from. This particular season, season two, uh, we have chosen Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Uh, The book has won a ton of awards Summary of the book As an evicted instant Sociologist and MacArthur Genius Matthew Desmond follows eight families in Milwaukee as they struggle to keep their roof over their heads. Held as wrenching and revelatory by the nation, vivid and unsettling by the New York Review of Books. <clears throat> evicted transforms our understanding of poverty in economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems I did a <clears throat> I went through it and read ahead as I always do just take some notes man on the upcoming chapter that we're going to talk about chapter 5 is titled 13th Street and I'm going to tell you man, 13th Street and family uh, reminds me of families that I know families that man it even reminds me of my own family She's a friend. She's trying to make it, huh? Chapter 13, and the text reads, Arlene didn't mind 13th Street. There was a bodega owned by the Arabs on one end of her block and a bar for old men on the other. She could walk Jafaris to school. Arlene could have done without the heights, also known as crackheads recently moved into the abandoned house next door but a few more houses down a girl was learning to play the violin her new apartment was coming along too there was a time when the house was a stately thing built in greek revival style it was two stories of sandstone block with twin columns supporting a awning from over the front porch a pair of picture frame windows adorned with peak pediments faced the street as did a larger second story window whose pane opened on hinges but over the years the house had deteriorated What column base was unsettling causing the overhead awning to slope sideways the column's porch and window pediments had painted ash grey an imposing iron barred outer door had been installed Arlene didn't like walking up the steps with their flaking paint and mismatched stair rails on either side, so she always used the side entrance. Arlene had thrown herself into making the apartment a home. The previous tenants sorry, had left behind a large armoire, a bedroom dresser, a bed, and a refrigerator. And there even And there was even more in the basement. Dishes, clothes, and an upholstered chair. Arlene put it all to use, rearranging the furniture and stacking the dishes next to her nice porcelain plates. The furniture was once used and given to her years ago by a domestic violence shelter. She claimed the front bedroom and gave the boys the one in the back placing their twin mattresses on the ground and organizing clothes in dressing drawers. (laughs) She unpacked a stereo and listened to old-school hip-hop tracks on burning CDs. Her favorite being Tupac's Keep Your Head Up. In the kitchen, she hung a humble drawing of a black farmer's hauling a row. Over the bathroom door, she affixed a sign that she had found at a drugstore. Today worried you. Yesterday, and all is well. In the basement, Arlene also came across some rollers, brushes, and a five-gallon bucket of white paint. She lugged everything upstairs, tied a wrap around her head, and gave the walls a fresh coat. She went ahead and painted the stairwell leading to the upstairs unit, too. The job complete. She lit a stick of incense to mask the paint smell and looked around. She felt pleased with her self-content. The days passed, and Arlene and her boys settled into her new home. After school, Jory sometimes challenged other neighborhood boys to a game of cans. Jafaris looked on. Using a basketball, Jory and his competitor tried to hit soda cans flattened on the sidewalk, earning more points for the father's shot. He was a lanky boy whose arms and fingers seemed to be growing faster than the rest of them, a condition he tried to conceal under oversized sweatshirts and coats. He wore his natural hair and had a relaxed, agreeable way about him. But Drury was fiercely loyal to his mother. If Arlene needed to smile, Drury would steal for her. If she was disrespected, he would fight for her. Some kids born into poverty set their sights on doing whatever it takes to get out, Drury wasn't going anywhere, sensing he was put on this earth to look after Arlene and Jafaris. He was all of 14 years old. The man of the house. Jafaris was a big kid, the biggest in his kindergarten class. While Drury was all knees and elbows, Jafaris had a round chest to shoulders, with high cheekbones and cornrows that always needed redoing. When Jafar's grew bored, he would scavenge the basement or back alley for anything he could find. mop handles, rusted tools, dog leashes, pieces of plywood, and pretend that they were tanks, helicopters, locked in battle. After dinner, Arlene would watch reruns with her volume turned low. Or read through Jafar's individual education program, IEP evaluations. Or flip through her prayer book. Some nights she climbed the stairs and opened the upper unit's unlocked door to give herself a little privacy. Arlene liked that the upstairs unit was vacant. She preferred the things quiet. One day a friend gave Arlene a cat, a half-black, half-white thing. After Sharina said they could keep it, Jury named him Little and began feeding him table scraps. Jury laughed when Little would spring at a loose shoelace or gulp down a ramen noodle. Jafaris would pick up, pick him up and press his nose against his ear. <clears throat> Excuse me. Both boys especially loved it when Little caught a mouse. He would drag the thing to the middle of the room and smack it around. The mouse would take different routes, trying to figure out what Little wanted. Bat, bat, the mouse would tumble and roll with every swat. At some point, the pathetic creature would burrow under Little's arm, hiding. Little would let the mouse rest and warm itself. Then he might reach down and grab the creature with his mouth and throw it into the air, enjoying the effort and doing it again and again. Eventually, the mouse would just lie there, motionless. Little would look at it with cold disgust, wondering why the creature didn't look up. Drury opened the door and called out, He have an asthma attack. Jory had walked Jafar's home from school. Arlene stayed on the love seat, waiting to see how bad it was. <clears throat> when it was a small attack, Jafar's mouth opened and closed like a caught fish. When it was a medium attack, he made an O with his mouth. When it was bad, his lips curled back and he breathed through his nubby teeth. Jafar's walked through the door, making the O face. He shrugged off of his backpack and leaned on the love seat like an old man after climbing a flight of steps. Jafaris, go get my bag, Arlene said. The boy nodded and went to the bedroom. When he came back, Arlene pulled out an albuterol and shook it. Jafaris put his mouth to the inhaler and breathed in, but their timing was off. Blow it out! Don't be playing with me, Arlene snapped. Jafaris missed the next try, too, but the third filled his lungs. He held his breath, puffing out his cheeks the way children do before jumping into a pool. His mother counted. One, two, three. At ten, Jafaris exhaled and took a breath in and smiled. Arlene smiled back. She gave Jafaris albuterol every morning and every evening. Before bed, he got prednisone, a steroid, through a pronub ultra nebulizer with a plastic tubing and airplane cabin mask. Arlene called it the breathing, ma- uh, breathing machine. Jafar's asthma had been improving. Arlene remembered when she used to rush Jafar to the hospital every week. Jafar's father had given him his name, and lately Arlene had been worried he might given him other things too. His father had learning disabilities and anger issues. And Jafaris was beginning to exhibit similar characteristics at school. He excelled at reading, but struggled with other subjects, and he pushed his classmates around. He had been evaluated, but didn't qualify for additional help. Some teachers had suggested medication, which made Arlene bristle. I don't like medicine. I'm totally against Ritalin. I think he needs more one-on-one attention. I don't want to medicate him until he's seen a counselor and done going through that. Excuse me. If we listen to man, we hear Arlene and we see, see what she's going through. We're about to get to the part of the story where we get a, a, a clearer understanding of how Arlene got into the situation. So far, Arlene seems like a, a a typical mom who's just trying to trying to make it through. Who's just trying to do the best she can. But we're gonna see here, man. That things are not quite, not quite what they think, man. Here we go. Damn it, it gets rough, man. Arlene had met Jafar's father at the movie theater at the Mayfair Mall when she was working the concession stand. It just kind of happened, Arlene recalled, We weren't in no real relationship. They tried for one, but Arlene discovered he could be a violent man. He went to prison soon after she left him. He gave Jafar little else beyond life. It had been the same way with Arlene's father. He had left after impregnating her mother, who was only 16 when she had Arlene. Arlene's grandmother served food in a cafeteria at Columbia St. Mary's Hospital, but her mother rarely worked outside the home. She received assistance and later married a man who held down a job. That man became a minister, which was the reason Arlene tried never to set foot in the church. There's a whole lot behind that statement right there, man. A whole lot. There's a lot to read, which was the reason Arlene tried never to set foot in the church. Now, the author doesn't speak a lot about the relationship between Arlene and her stepfather. But there's something there, and you can see it. Back to the text, and the text reads, When Arlene moved out of 17, she threw away... The hand-me-down clothes her mother had made her wear to school. Ding-dong, her classmates would taunt her when she walked past and recycled bell bottoms. Arlene put rubber bands on the bottom of her jeans, but that only made the kids laugh harder. When she dropped out before finishing high school, her mother said nothing. She didn't care. Arlene moved in with a family that paid her to babysit their children. During that time, she met the man who would become the father of her oldest, her eldest child, Gerald, whom she took to calling Gerger. After Arlene discovered she was pregnant with Gerger, her man got entangled with the law. I didn't know nothing about having no boyfriend and not a jail all the time. So when I met somebody else during one of the times Gerger's father was locked up, I just left him alone. That someone else was Larry. He was a lean man with calm eyes and a wide brow. Larry had taught himself how to be a mechanic and earn money fixing cars in the back alley. On paintings he would take Arlene out for Chinese food, her favorite. She would read the long menu but order the same thing every time, sesame chicken. They were pouring in love and soon Arlene was pregnant with another son. They named him after Larry but called him Boosie. Larry and Arlene had three more children after that. A daughter and two more sons letting Arlene's mother name their youngest jury they liked it. <clears throat> Would you marry me? Larry asked one day. <laughs> Arlene laughed. She thought he was joking and said no. He wasn't talking about no big marriage. Wasn't even talking about a courthouse. Arlene remembered. But he was not joking. When she realized this, Arlene dropped her smile and said she would have to think about it. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. What gave her pause was not Larry, but his mother and sister. They always thought they knew more. I was never good enough in their eyes. After that, Larry started running around. He crushed Arlene, but when he came back, she always held the door open until one day he didn't come back. They had been together for seven years. This time, the other woman was someone Arlene considered a friend. That happened years ago. Sometimes Larry parked outside of where Arlene was staying. She'd climb in his van, and they'd drive around and talk, mostly about jewelry. From time to time, Larry took jewelry to church or let him spend the night or swelled his lip for getting in trouble at school. When Drury spotted Larry driving by in the neighborhood, he hollered, There goes my daddy! and run after him. When Larry walked out on her and the kids Arlene was working at the mainstay suites by the airport, in despair she quit and began relying on welfare. Sometimes later she found work cleaning the Third Street Pier restaurant, but then her mother died suddenly. The grief overwhelmed her, and she left that job too. She later regretted going back on welfare, but it was a dark time. When she moved on to 13th Street, Arlene was receiving W2T, owing mainly to her chronic depression. She received the same stipend in 2008 that she would have when welfare was reformed over a decade earlier, $20.65 a day. $7,536 Seven thousand five hundred and thirty-six dollars a year. Now, listen. Let's stop for a second, family, and let's let's unpack that. Arlene was receiving assistance, a stipend, mainly due to her chronic depression. The stipend that she was receiving in two thousand eight was the same as it was 10 years before. So in 1998, it was also $20.65, $7,536 a year. $7,536 a year was the stipend she was receiving for her chronic depression. Now we just read how and some of the reasons why she had chronic depression from the, the heartbreak. Oh, well, let's even go back further than that. Let's even look at the relationship that she had with her mother and her stepfather, the minister. The relationship was bad enough where she decided she never wanted to step foot in the church again. You can hear some of the negative things that her mother said to her. The lack of care or the lack of feeling that, she, that Arlene felt her mother had for her. The, number, the, the, the relationship that she had early on with her child's father, Gerger. Then Larry wanting to marry her. She brushing Larry off to the side. Larry gets frustrated, gets fed up, and moves on to somebody else. And does a sloppy, ignorant move by choosing to be with one of Arlene's friends. So we can see how then Arlene's mother dies. We see the grief. We see where the chronic depression could possibly come in. Now, somebody who actually has a a stable job with a living wage, that's $7,536 would be a a, a nice addition to that. Be a nice addition. But what is $7,536 going to do when you got five children? What does it do? What does it do? Nothing. Back to the text. Since 1997, welfare stipends in Milwaukee and almost everywhere else have not budged, even as housing costs have soared. For years, politicians have known that families cannot survive on welfare alone. This was the case here before, when utility costs climbed throughout the 2000s. It was even more true afterwards. Arlene had given up hoping for public assistance long ago. If she had a housing voucher or a key to a public housing unit, she would spend only 30 percent of her income on rent. It would mean the difference between stable poverty and grinding poverty, the difference between planting roots in the community and being battered from one place to another. It would mean she could give most of her check to her children instead of her landlord. The difference between stable poverty family and grinding poverty ain't no difference between that. I understand the distinction that the author is trying to make, and even Arlene trying to make, but man, that's poverty, period. Back to the text. Years ago, when she was nineteen, Arlene rented a subsidized apartment for one hundred and thirty-seven dollars a month. She had just had surgery and was grateful to be out of her mother's house. She could make her own decisions. So when her friend asked Arlene to give up her place and move in with her, Arlene decided to say yes. 19-year-old decisions. Damn. She walked away from a subsidized apartment and into the private rental market where she could stay for the next 20 years. I thought it was okay to move somewhere else. She remembered. And I regret it. Right now to this day, young. She shook her head at her 19-year-old self. If I would have been in my right mind, I could have still be there. One day on a whim, Arlene stopped by the housing authority and asked about a list. The woman behind the glass told her the list is frozen. On it were over 3,500 families who had applied for rent assistance four years earlier. Arlene nodded and left with her hands in her pockets. It could have been worse. In larger cities like Washington, D.C., the wait for public housing was counted in decades. In those cities, a mother of a young child who put her name on the list might be a grandmother by the time the application was renewed. Most poor people in America were like Arlene. They did not live in public housing or apartments subsidized by vouchers. Three in four families who qualify for assistance receive nothing. Three in four families. Dang. If Arlene wanted public housing, she would have to save a month's worth of income to repay the housing authority for leaving her subsidized apartment without giving notice, then wait two to three years until the list unfroze, then wait another two to five years until her application made it to the top of the pile, then pray to Jesus that the person with the stale coffee and the heavy stamp reviewing her file would somehow overlook the eviction record she collected while trying to make ends meet in the private housing market on a welfare check. So she got to pay back the money that she owes the housing authority. Then wait another 10 years to possibly, possibly. The upstairs unit on the 13th Street didn't sit vacant for long. Sharina moved a young woman into the apartment soon after the paint had dried on Arlene's wall. Trisha was her name. Arlene and Trisha began talking and sharing meals. Arlene could be quiet and cautious around new people guarded, but Trisha was an open book. She told Arlene that this was her first real home in eight years. Her last real home belonged to her sister, who had asked her to leave after Trisha told her what their father had done to her. Trisha then started sleeping in shelters and abandoned houses, but mostly she went home with men. Damn it. At 16, she learned to use her skinny frame, her flush of wavy black hair, her copper skin, a mix of black Mexican and white blood. The year before, when she was 23, Trisha had had a baby, but signed him over to her sister because she was using crack mostly. After the baby came, Trisha found repairs of the breach, a local homeless outreach that helped her get on SSI. Damn, Trisha. Trisha was illiterate and fragile. Jury once reduced her to tears by asking her, are you special or something? But she was also laid back and sweet. Most of all, she was there. When Arlene and Trisha wanted to smoke to stave off boredom or at the end of the month hunger, Trisha used spare chains to buy loose cigarettes at the corner store or fish stubs from standing ashtrays outside of fast food joints. When Arlene needed to run an errand, Trisha would watch the boys, and Jury, who saw Trisha as an equal or lesser, but certainly not as adult, would tell her to watch her mouth around your forest. I was born to be cussing, Trisha would reply. One day, Arlene and Trisha watched a U-Haul truck pull up. Three women and a man walked up to the apartment and gave Arlene's door a knock. Sensing who they were, Arlene cracked the door and wedged her foot in, her leg and foot behind it in case they try to push through. A young woman introduced herself as the previous tenant and said she came to collect her things. The armoire, the dresser and refrigerator all belonged to her. Arlene told the young woman that Sharina had thrown everything out. The woman looked doubtful, but Tricia backed up. The previous tenant and her people left before discovering the lie. Once they were gone, Arlene and Tricia nodded at each other. After that, Trisha took to telling people that the woman were old friends that they had met outside a corner store years ago. When Trisha was just a girl and Arlene had told her, you are pretty female. There was more to the story about Arlene meeting Trisha's mother in the prison about Trisha waking up in the hospital and Arlene being there, but it was all in Trisha's head. It was hard to know if she believed it or not Trisha came to Sharina through Belinda Hall, who was the best thing that happened to Sharina in a long time. A black woman not yet 30 with a round face and glasses, Belinda ran her own business, working as a representative payee responsible for handling the finances of SSI beneficiaries found incapable of managing their own money. So, what she did was she created a business where people who received SSI. And were quote unquote unable to or incapable of managing on their own. Her business was to handle the money for these people. Now watch how this, this hustle works. <clears throat> Sharina liked finding tenants through social services agencies, which often vouch for tenants and put up some cash. Now remember, Sharina's a landlord. <clears throat> we read about, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, my throat. We read about Sharina earlier in uh, chapter two and three. She's the, the, the black female landlord. Uh, she met Belinda, this representative, quote unquote. Now listen to how the game works. But Belinda was a special catch. I've been helping this girl as much as possible because I want her to fill up my properties, Sharina reflected. The rent comes directly from her every month. So that's a damn good situation to be in. Sharina told Belinda that she would empty out all her units if she wanted them for her clients. I'm serious, Belinda. I know I would get my money. Trisha was the fourth tenant Belinda had given Sharina since the two women had met three months earlier. Those poor disabled enough to receive SSI but not clean enough to be welcomed into public housing made up Belinda's client base. Belinda estimated that rent payments took between 60 to 70 percent of her typical client's monthly income. Many clients had little left over after Belinda paid for rent, utilities, and food. <laughs> because stable and affordable housing was a major problem for Belinda's clients, she cultivated a friendship with landlords, whom she could then call upon in emergency. Belinda once full Serena around 5 a.m. because the heat in one of her client's buildings had gone out and she needed to relocate her that day. The faster Belinda could address clients' housing issues, the more clients she could take on and the more money she can make. Belinda charged each client $37 a month for her services. $37 a month per client family. When she met Sharina, Belinda had two hundred and thirty clients. Okay, two hundred and thirty doggone clients. Now we gonna do some math. We, we do we want to do some math to see what Belinda is making a month? Do we want, to, we want to see? We want to figure out. <clears throat> we want to get an idea. <clears throat> excuse me, man, my throat. I don't know what the problem is, but excuse me. Let's see the, the hustle that she's in. Now, listen, remember what Belinda does. Belinda gets money. She finds people who are on SSI, people who are incapable of maintaining their finances now she gets these people to the, 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 the buy into what she does i have no idea but she gets these people to give her their check and she pays their rent utility and make sure they have food and she only charges them 37 dollars a month okay she has 230 clients Wonder how much she makes a month? Wonder how much she makes a month? Belinda makes $8,000 a month. Because remember, SSI, this is guaranteed money, family. This is guaranteed money. Guaranteed money. So there's no concern about not getting paid. Maybe getting paid. Yada, yada, yada. Oh, no, 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 no. No. She's killing these people, man. What Belinda could offer Sharina and other landlords was a steady, reliable rental income. And what Belinda got in return was her growing customer base, which meant more money in her pocket. Press 1 to leave a message. Sharina, press 1. Arlene, this is Sharina calling. I'm calling to find out if you had your rent. Remember, we agreed that you were going to pay a little bit over to get caught up with the $320 you owed for. Sharina stopped herself. From finishing a sentence with your sister's funeral calls, she went on, "Um, I will be expecting the six hundred and fifty. Go ahead and give me a call." Arlene didn't regret what she had done. Usually, when there was a funeral, she couldn't even afford to buy Jafar's new shoes, and would just scrub his best ones. She had missed funerals in the past because Jury and Jafar's didn't have anything to wear, but this was her sister. Not her biological, but in the spiritual sense. They were close. She had long been a sickly girl, overweight and diabetic. Her heart quit after she had been hospitalized for pneumonia and a series of other health complications. Arlene didn't have the money, but neither did anyone else. She would have been ashamed of herself if she hadn't pitched in. And this is a woman who is broke, man. She ain't got a dime. She has nothing. Literally nothing. But she is thinking along the lines that she's going to feel some type of way if she doesn't take her last to chip in to pay for the funeral, not of her sister, but in the spiritual sense. So she gives half of her check to Sharina and the other half to the mortuary. Now this lady ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. Every dog one dime that she possibly has needs to be going to her rent, her utilities, or food. But the little money that she does have, she takes that and gives it up. (coughs) Now Sharina, the landlord, knows about this. Sharina's fully aware of this situation. Now, do you think Sharina granted Arlene some compassion? Had a little understanding for the situation? Nah, peep this. Sharina felt bad when she heard about Arlene's sister. She made her new tenant a deal. Arlene could stay if she paid 650 for three months to recover the lost rent. Even if Arlene signed over her entire welfare check each month, she still would be short. But Sharina was betting that Arlene could put in a few calls to family members or nonprofit agencies. Arlene took the deal because she had no other options, and she did have other options, family. She could have never gave that damn money up. She could have made better choice right there and not giving that damn money up. Sharina and Quentin were in the suburban when Arlene called around the beginning of the next month. Sharina hung up and looked at Quentin. Arlene said her check didn't come. This was half-truth. Arlene had received the check, but not for $628. She had missed an appointment with her welfare caseworker, completely forgetting about it. A reminder notice was mailed to Atkinson, or was it in 19th Street? When Arlene didn't show, the caseworker sanctioned Arlene by decreasing her benefit. Arlene could have given Sharina her reduced check, but she thought it was better to be behind and have a few hundred dollars in a pocket than be behind and completely broke. Quentin kept his eyes on the road. Story of the life, he said. Yo! Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of chapter five, man. How could you not be frustrated and have, I mean, it's like you have sympathy, but at the same time, you're so frustrated with the decision-making that these people make, man. Damn it. Damn it, man. And it <sighs> ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into another episode, man, of the Page Turner's podcast with your host Big L, Elgin Bailey, Mr. Catch Twenty Two, man. I thank you for tuning in. I'm looking forward to digging into chapter six, man, very soon. Uh my heart breaks for these folks, man. Cause yes, the system is set up and designed for to create or to perpetuate failure. But in the midst of that, you see how people make incredibly bad decisions in the midst of their poverty, which also nothing does nothing more but to compound their poverty. Damn, it's heartbreaking. Till next time, family. I'm out.